Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Music, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Eamon Bell, the host of the channel. Today, I'll be talking to Mac Haygood about his new book, Hush, Media and Sonic Self-Control, which was published in 2019 by Duke University Press in the Science Storage Transmission series. In Hush, Haygood examines a variety of 20th and 21st century objects, including field recordings, clinical audiometric tools, through to white noise apps and noise-cancelling headphones. What this collection of diverse tools and technologies have in common is, he argues, that they are all Orphic media, kinds of media that carry or generate sounds that are designed to efface themselves as such. Haygood draws on an impressive variety of sources, including the results of his own ethnographic work, patent documents, and archival material, to develop an account of these Orphic media that, ironically, fight sound with even yet more sound, an account that is both grounded in the technical detail of how these particular devices do this work and is also sensitive to their use contexts, both actual and intended. Excitingly, Haygood's account is general enough to offer an insight into how the concept of Orphic media might have critical purchase outside the world of sound. In our contemporary network media environment, which is characterized by excess and distraction across the entire sensorium, Orphic media can be understood as tactics and technologies that promise us respite from precisely this condition, even if that promise is not always fulfilled. Mike Haygood, welcome to the show. Hi, Eamon. Thank you. No problem. Thanks for coming on. Um, Mac, I wonder if you could begin the interview by uh, telling us a little bit about yourself. Uh, yeah, I'm originally from New Orleans, Louisiana, um, uh, a place where probably the primary sensory modalities are hearing and taste. <laughs> good good music and food. Um, and I think that probably had a, a lot of influence on where I wound up as a scholar. Um, I started off in undergrad as a theater major, actually, um, and did that at uh, Loyola University in New Orleans. And then from there, I had a, a really kind of long and unconventional path towards grad school. I kicked around in Southeast Asia for almost four years. I, I was based in Taiwan, actually, but I would I would like work for a while for an educational magazine um, and teaching English, and then I would travel around Southeast Asia, uh, collecting vinyl and tapes and making field recordings. And then I spent like a, a ten years in Chicago, playing in bands, doing editing and copywriting work, um, doing some work in the music industry, uh, musical instrument industry. And then eventually I tried to, uh, you know, make my way into grad school. Um, but at that point, you know, none of my faculty from my undergrad days had any relationship to me. And I wound up having to ask a Zen priest I was working with uh, to write a letter of recommendation for me. Um, and then somehow I, I managed to get into graduate school at Indiana University's uh, Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology, where I worked with um the, the Chinese music ethnomusicologist Su Tui and the um, performance scholar Richard Bauman. And then I transferred to the Department of Communication and Culture at Indiana, um, where I, I've worked with both media scholars and with uh, great anthropologists like Alana Gershon and my advisor, uh, Mary L. Gray. So uh, now, I, now I'm at Miami University. I've been there going on my seventh year. I teach audio media, digital media, ethnography, um, and I do a podcast called Phantom Power, which is a, a, a podcast about sound in the arts and humanities. 
Great. And I, even at this point, I strongly recommend uh, people who are interested in the topic of this podcast to check that out. And we'll definitely have a link in the blog post accompanying this podcast. Um, and I know you're keen to get right into talking about the topics of the book and, and we'll go through it chapter by chapter. But before we do that, and I think we'll obviously help drive us towards some of those things even immediately. Um, I'd like to ask you just first, how, how, you, how did you come to write this book? Um, you know, your background that you've just given us um, indicates that you've been thinking about questions of listening and technology for some time now. Um, and yeah, I wonder if you could chart your way through the particular terrain that you cover in the book and I suppose how you came to start thinking about um, these things uh, insofar as they make a contribution to the sound sphere, but also, I guess, media studies more broadly. Yeah. Um, well, I guess one way to describe this book is that it's about technologies that generate the most boring, forgettable, ignorable sounds in the world, <laughs> which maybe is not the uh, greatest way to promote the book by describing it that way. But um, so, yeah, I'm focusing on white noise machines, um, apps and machines that make nature sounds, uh, the noise ca- cancellation aspect of, of, of noise canceling headphones, which if it's working correctly, doesn't make any sound at all. Um, so yeah. So why am I fascinated in these really boring sounds? Um, there's probably a few different ways to tell that story. One would be that I had this common grad school experience. I think it's common where, um, I was studying ethnomusicology and the more I learned about music, the, fe- the less I felt I knew about music. Um, you know, music is a material resonance. It's a cultural code. It can have representational lyrics, but also these non-representational modes and timbres that are nevertheless, you know, make us feel things. Um, and then it has musical traditions and politics and genres and industries and all this stuff. Right. Um, and so every claim I felt I made about music <laughs> was like, uh, I felt like it was teetering on this huge scaffold of assumptions, and that just made me get very basic. So I'm just like a, a very basic guy. <laughs> I think um, I, I wanted to sort of explore like what is the relationship between sound as a resonance of pressure waves in the air and and the space that it, it, it inhabits and expresses and the human beings and cultures that uh, live in it. And um, so really, this relationship between sound space the self and the social. Um, And I just felt like if I could say anything helpful or meaningful about that really super basic relationship, then maybe that would help everyone else as they scaffolded up their arguments um, about the complexities of music. So that's one thing. Um, Another thing was, you know, at the time when I was in grad school, um, at the intersection of ethnomusicology and popular music studies, which was sort of a space I was trying to work in, um, people were really into scenes, right? Like uh, I I loved Ruth Finnegan's uh, book, The Hidden Musicians, and and Holly Cruz had uh, the the book about um, indie music scenes. And coming from these participatory scenes in New Orleans and Taipei and Chicago, like I, I got that, right? And then when I switched to media studies, fandom was really hot. Um, and so Henry Jenkins, convergence, participation, participation, all this kind of stuff. But then I really started feeling like, well, of course this stuff would resonate with scholars, right? Because we're the people who care enough about media and music to actually study it. Mm -hmm. Um, but most media users aren't 
fans, right? They're not fanatical about the way they use media. And looking at the people in my family who weren't like me, I, they just use media to kind of get through their day. And often they don't even really pay attention to it. So I, I got really into things like Anna McCarthy's ambient television um, and, uh, and, and thinking about um, the, the spatial aspects of, of, uh, of media and um, thinking about people like my grandmother who like after my grandfather passed away, she slept in the living room in front of the television. You know, this was sort of before there was a TV in every room. Um, and why did she do that? You know, um, and so and so these kind of more disengaged interactions with media were interesting to me. Um, and I actually have one more way of telling this story. I don't know if it's no, sure. too many ways. OK, um, so the third way of, tell, of, of telling the story is uh, takes me back to Taipei, um, Taiwan. And uh, I was walking through an alley. This is in the mid 1990s. Um, and this is a, I actually talk about this story in the book. So I used to like to, after work, just walk all through different areas of the city. It's an amazing city. Um, and one time I was in this really old section of the city and I heard this um, monk chanting uh, a Buddhist sutra. And uh, I started walking through some alleys towards the sound. And I, I eventually came up to um, a, a small old house that had an open window. And that's where the sound was coming from in this empty room. There was nobody there. And there was just this altar that had this, you know, like some incense and, and um, an electric candle. And there was this transistor radio looking thing on the little altar. And that's where the sound of the monk was coming from. So I, I was just like, this was bizarre. And so I, I asked a friend about it and they told me that um, this was a, called a Nianfoji. Um, I'm, not, I'm not saying the tones properly in Chinese, but, um, and it was typically used by Pure Land Buddhists um, to kind of, as, as the scholar Natasha Heller, who is like the rare person who's done scholarly work on this, um, to kind of create a protective and efficacious environment, as she calls it. I love that phrase, protective and efficacious. Um, so I, I started collecting these things. I, I became kind of obsessed with them, um, these different chanting boxes, and there are lots of different ones. So about a decade later, um, this group called FM3 puts out what they called the Buddha machine, which is actually a perfect translation of the Nianfoji. Um, but instead of the prayers, they use these ambient experimental loops, right? So um, in both cases, it's, it's like this little device that has looped sounds on it. But in one case, it's, it's a, this religious device. In another case, it becomes this aesthetic device. And it became sort of like a, a hit in the experimental music scene. They sold these things. Brian Eno loved it. Throbbing Gristle, Philip Glass, all of these different people started collecting these things. So when this happened in the mid 2000s, I was in grad school. I'm reading Deleuze and Guattari as one does in grad school, right? And in A Thousand Plateaus, they write about the refrain and they use this sonic example of a frightened child walking in the dark, singing a song to create a safer space, 
around himself um, and using this song to kind of pacify and stabilize the space around him. And Deleuze and Guattari say that, you know, TV and radio can sonically mark territories and that sound can pacify a disorderly space. It can build walls around an already stable space and it can also disrupt an orderly space to foster kind of new possibilities. So, um, you know, listening to my Buddha machines and reading this, I was just like, <laughs> oh man, like a light bulb went off for me, right? Um, people were using the Buddha machines to const- construct different kinds of space for different purposes. And it was the simplest of sounds, just these really short loops of a few seconds that had such power. Um, and I wanted to do my field work in China. I actually did some f- initial f- field work in China, but by this time I was in my 30s and dragging my family to, to um, China just didn't seem like a fair ask. So I wound up asking myself, what technologies do we have in the United States that function in ways similar to these Buddha machines and, you know, that create this kind of productive, safe, efficacious space, right? And, um, and that's what led me to noise-canceling headphones and white noise machines and nature recordings. And that's what became my dissertation and eventually this book. Great. Yeah, that definitely starts to open up things uh, as we move into kind of the introduction of the book, which I suppose is to maybe put a finer point on exactly what that function is when media are operating in that register, if you like. And and the term Mm. that you come up with um, to to characterize these media, maybe when they're operating on this register or with this affectual function is Orphic media, um, which covers many of the devices that we'll talk about and those that you've just spoken about. So could you give us an idea maybe what it is at stake for calling a, a media an Orphic medium uh, or even Orphic <laughs> media collectively? Um, and I suppose particularly this idea of the myth of Orpheus that you kind of draw out in the book, because it's a, a really, to me, it's a very clarifying set of um, allegories or fables to help us think clearly about um, what's at stake by calling something uh, Orphic rather than any other particular tag? Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I, it was it was clarifying for me when I finally thought of it, which was very, very late in the process. Um, I had already done the dissertation. I was calling these things audio-spatial media at the, <laughs> in the dissertation, which is uh, seems clunky in comparison. Um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, the tale of, of, of Orpheus that I kind of fixated on, of course, Orpheus was the first poet in um, ancient Greek mythology, the, the first musician, the first teller of tales of gods, of the gods, right? Um, but the, the aspect that I'm fascinated by, or one of the main aspects I'm fascinated by, um, is from the, the story of Jason and the Argonauts going to get the Golden Fleece. Um, and Orpheus was part of the crew of the Argo, um, and he, he actually had very important functions. He helped the, the shipmates row in time. He stopped them from fighting with one another. He, he would praise the gods when they would come to a new land. But the piece that really fascinated me and kind of pulled my project together for me was when Orpheus encountered the sirens, of course, were these mythical bird women who, whose seductive voices you know, led you to certain death. And um, when Orpheus encounters the sirens, he keeps himself and his fellow Argonauts safe 
by fighting their song with a counter song of his own, a kind of a wall of sound, you know, to quote Phil Spector. Um, and, and this foreshadows this really common yet just not really considered um, form of media practice, um, which is suppressing, masking, or canceling unwanted sound in order to create a safe space for the self. And so um, there's sort of two ways we could talk about Orphic media, at least two ways. Um, one is in the very narrow sense. It's the, it's the technologies that are the case studies in my book. So, um, you know, like I said, the white noise machines and, and so forth. All of these offer self-control through sound control. They offer us the ability to control our own attention and state of being. Um, and so in one sense, the book is a 60 year history of these technologies. I'm asking why did these things arise and feel so necessary to us? Um, and so I identify three modes through which these devices function. Um, there's masking where you use one sound to kind of cover over another sound. Um, so that occurs in the, in the, case of the white noise machines and the nature sound recordings and, and, uh, and the different kinds of apps that people use. There's cancellation where you use one sound and you pull and you, you mic a sound and you play it out of phase with itself so that the peaks and valleys of the original sound and the peaks and valleys of the, of the, um, the mic sound cancel one another out, which is how noise canceling headphones work. And these, new hearable devices that people are starting to use a lot work. And then finally there's suppression, which is a special case um, that occurs with tinnitus maskers where tinnitus, um, you know, this ringing or buzzing in the head or ears is uh, this kind of subjective sound that, that other people can't hear. Right. Um, and as it turns out, people wear white noise um, maskers to, we, we call them maskers, but they, that's actually incorrect. They don't really mask the sound of tinnitus. They actually suppress it and keep it from arising as loudly. And we can talk perhaps later about tinnitus. So anyway, there are these three modes. And so that would be the narrow sense of orphic media. But in a much broader sense, I'm making an argument that we use all media, whether it's the television or the internet, as orphic media. Um, I our usual definition of media is that they're technologies for the transmission of information. We use media to inform, entertain, or send messages, which is true, but I'm arguing that that definition is too limited um, and that the real essence of media use is the same as it is for any other tool that humans use, which is to control our relationship to our environment and to others, to maintain a sense of equilibrium, well-being, and agency or, or what I call control. And in view of that, then just quickly to tag on, like the role of content changes, like the idea that the content of the communication is the most interesting thing to analyze from either the scholarly or from a mass communications perspective kind of falls away under this regime, right? Um, you're asking a little bit for us to I'd maybe tune in, I suppose, to use a, an audio metaphor to maybe a different okay. register, the affectual register. Could you talk just a little bit about that? I mean, I, that's exactly what you're alluding to right now, but just where, where does affect come into the register in which we could understand 
you know, something as diverse as the noise cancelling headphones in the same breath in, in an example that you suggest as some software that we might use to um, temporarily disable Facebook from our computers to help us get work done, both from mm. your perspective or Orphic Media, certainly under the second kind of broad definition that you've given. Yes, yes, that's a that's a great point. Um, I, maybe maybe I can concretize this a little bit through like an example that it, it's, I think it's, it, I don't know, it's from one of the chapters, I think the fourth chapter. Um, but um, I, I was interviewing um, the developers of these apps um, that create white noise or nature sounds, right? And so I interviewed this guy um, named Todd Moore, who had this app that was called uh, White Noise, actually. <laughs> and it was a highly successful app. But um, he had this really big surge um, in 2009 of downloads due to a story in the Washington Post about smartphone using babies. <laughs> so uh, basically, uh, it talked about there's this baby who got used to hearing the sound of the air conditioner, and that's how it would fall asleep. And um, the the once once the the weather you know got cooler and the, the family no longer needed an air conditioner, the baby couldn't sleep anymore. And so the dad downloaded this white noise app, and it had an air conditioner setting, and he put it in the crib, and the baby slept great. Right. So now from a point of view of developmental psychology, right, you know, if we're thinking about media and the usual definition of media, well, the baby is not being informed by this app, right? The baby's not being entertained. The baby's not interpreting messages. In fact, a baby can't even do those things yet. Um, and actually adults use this kind of app in the exact same way as the, the baby does. Um, it, it helps them not be affected by the environment in, in ways that they don't want to be affected. So does the smartphone stop functioning as a media device in that moment? I would say, no, what it's doing is it's doing a different kind of mediation. It, it's facilitating this temporary equilibrium between the baby and the environment. And, and, Orphic media, when used by adults as well, they aren't the object of our attention. They help us manage our attention. Um, they have all these boring sounds, most of which contain a shh sound, right? Rain, waterfall, ocean waves, white noise, brown noise. This is noise. It's the opposite of information. It's media that block communication. They don't help communication. Um, so it's mediating a relationship an affective relationship to the environment. Um, and, you know, this desire for control, um, it, it gets expressed and channeled and manipulated in differing historical conditions, um, different sets of politics and power. And in, in our era, it's profoundly affected by the pressures of neoliberal capitalism. Um, and I'm coming from this sort of Spinozan, you know, Deleuzian um, wing of, of affect studies um, that concerns the ability of bodies broadly construed, construed to affect one another, right? Um, and be affected by what one another. So this kind of relational ontology where these ostensibly free agentive bodies are really arising in every moment in relation to one another. 
And, and Spinoza in his ethics really focuses on the ways that affective relations can be enabling and disabling. Um, and so as many of your listeners will know, this has been like really hot in the humanities. Um, people have been interested in affect and debating affect and critiquing affect. Um, and there's been some great work on sound and music and affect um, from folks like Lawrence Grossberg, Steve Goodman, and Marie Thompson. Um, but from a media perspective, I think what a lot of folks have found it useful for is to discuss how media does more than or do more than represent and misrepresent and ideologically indoctrinate, right? Media make us feel. Media create possibilities and foreclose these subjective possibilities. Um, So someone like Trump, you know, people don't see Trump in the media and vote for him because they're misinformed, right? And it's not because his ideology is so coherent. He doesn't even have ideology. You know, he just cares about himself. But he's, he was a master architect of affect, right? The sense of energy and empowerment that he gives his followers and, and, the, and the, sense, the profound sense of disablement and disempowerment that, you know, the people who oppose him feel from him. Like, that's what it's all about, right? Um, so, yeah, that, that, and so for me, I, I guess my contribution to this whole uh, debate is that once again, I'm trying to get super basic. I'm trying to tease out the affective dimensions of media use because music and media have all of these different levels, right? The semiotic, the lyrical, the representational, the ideological, and it can be hard to tease out the affective dimensions. Um, and, and so uh, often I feel like what happens is you know, media scholarship can use affect theory, but still be focused on information. Um, and, and so sometimes affect winds up feeling like some extra thing in addition to the representational aspect. Um, I can't remember Larry Grossberg said something like sometimes it affect just becomes some kind of like magic fairy dust. (laughs) Or I had a friend on Twitter who said every time he, he teaches the one day on affect in this particular class, he finds himself waggling his fingers in the air a lot. You know? yeah. um, so what, what I'm saying is, okay, let's investigate some media that barely traffic in representations at all, right? Like white noise, that's the opposite of information. So perhaps this will help us better isolate some affective dimensions of media use. Um, and what I found was that people are using these devices to remediate affective relations that felt diminishing to them, right? Like whether it was the sound of tinnitus in their own head or, um, you know, someone trying to concentrate in an open plan office with noisy coworkers or someone who can't sleep due to traffic noise. Orphic media offer this ability to rework the set of affective relations that feels diminishing and then, make the person feel empowered to inhabit the subjectivity or affective state that they desire. And and that's what I would say is the basic thing that all media do. Affect comes first. Semiotics and representation and information are just fancier ways of navigating our relationship to our environment. Yeah. And I think 
that's there's a mental discipline almost to working with these kind of minimal cases that will help us explain things that are slightly more complicated, like the mixture of message and affect that something like Trump represents. So speaking of one of those particular minimal kind of still not fully well understood, but there's a clinical practice around it, um, tinnitus, which you describe in the first chapter of the book. Um, in which you present an ethnography of the realities of living with the condition of tinnitus um, based on fieldwork that you carried out, a little bit of autoethnography as well. Um, could you explain for our listeners, well, we alluded to it briefly, what tinnitus is and some of the kind of competing or hypotheses about uh, its origin and its kind of um, clinical manifestation, and then what studying tinnitus and the kind of media environment around tinnitus has uh, taught you about Orphic media and this idea that we can use Orphic media to uh, mold or control our, our surroundings in an effectual way. Okay, <laughs> let's get this. Might take me a little while. <laughs> um, <laughs> no problem. So, so as we yeah, as we touched upon, subjective tinnitus is is um, perceptions of sound in the head or ears. Um, that can't be heard by others. So the doctor puts her ear up to your ear and she doesn't hear, you know, like a pulse, like, cause the pulsatile tinnitus, there could be an objective thing that's happening there, physical mechanical thing that creates tinnitus. So I'm talking about the tinnitus that gets called subjective. Um, although tinnitus really blurs the boundaries of subjectivity and objectivity. Um, tinnitus is something we all, experience and generally it's benign for a small subset of people it can be a profoundly just sort of life-altering experience it can you know um there are people with tinnitus who become very depressed very anxious um unable to do their jobs and so forth um so tinnitus can become disabling when an affective fear attaches to it um, and I, I ended up studying tinnitus because people with tinnitus are avid users of Orphic media. Some use it as a kind of folk medicine to kind of manage their own tinnitus by using uh, different sounds. They kind of just instinctively do it. But uh, I, I learned from doing, you know, my, my research where I went to... Uh, audiology clinics and research um, institutes and and uh, and hearing aid manufacturers and trade shows and so forth um, that you know people also use orphic media as what Mara Mills would call prescription media uh, an audiologist actually prescribes a white noise masker for you to wear um, so why, why Orphic Media? Well, the, the mechanism here, and this is all, you know, I had to learn a lot about the physiology of, of tinnitus. But it's called auto, automatic gain control. The, the simplest way I could describe this to you is um, if you take a, a stereo receiver, right, or an amplifier of any kind, and you don't play any music through it, but you just crank it up, you start to hear the sound of the amplifier itself, right? You start hearing this noise. And basically, um, early research in the 50s showed that 94% of people with normal 
so-called normal hearing, <laughs> will have tinnitus when you put them in an anechoic chamber where there's no sound. Because what's happening is the brain is turning up the volume. And so um, tinnitus is a phantom auditory perception, not unlike a phantom limb. So orphic media enrich the sound environment which again, doesn't mask the tinnitus. It actually suppresses the tinnitus from arising. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I would think of masking as a kind of talking over, I could talk over you and you, the listeners would struggle to hear um, your speech through my speech. It might even completely dominate. I think of something like that as characteristic of masking. And what you're describing is, at least in its therapeutic use, a kind of providing more sound information to distract the attention of the quote-unquote information processing part of the, the ear <laughs> uh, to no longer attend to this tinnitus, which most of us experience or would experience were we in a perfectly quiet environment. Is that right? Yeah, that's close. I would say the, the only sort of slight alteration I would make there is, is that it's not quite what I would say called distraction what it is is that the the auditory system functions just like the pupil in the eye so when you're in a low light situation your pupil enlarges because the 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 visual system craves light just the same your auditory system craves sound and when it's denied sound it cranks up the volume just like that amplifier and so what you're hearing is the random neuronal firing of your own brain <laughs> is, the, is the tinnitus. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's uh, the mechanism there. And, and I, I start off, you know, the first body chapter of the book is tinnitus because tinnitus wound up teaching me so much um, it, because it's such a high stakes use of Orphic media. Like these are the most dedicated users of this kind of media who are trying to control their phantom auditory perception. Um, yeah. And there are quite variable clinical outcomes, if I remember correctly from the book. Like there, it, it can really depend on the attitude that the um, sufferer of tinnitus takes towards the media. Could you speak a little bit about that? I mean, I think that brings up an idea that, you know, these media don't always... <laughs> They require the cooperation of their subjects, if, if, if you know what I'm talking about. Or oh, yeah, 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 yeah. These two vivid kind of very drastically different clinical outcomes uh, based on their attitude towards whether they think this thing is going to help or how they think, expect the Orphic Media to help. Yeah. Um, so I, I always try to speak carefully around here because I, I have in the past upset people with tinnitus um, who sometimes interpret what I'm talking about here as a, as a way of blaming the victim. And I actually have tinnitus myself. When I started my field work, um, right before I studied my, this, is, this was a crazy thing that happened, but right before I um, submitted, or right after I submitted my proposal and had it accepted, so I was going to start my field work and I had included tinnitus, I actually had a, a bike tire explode right next to my left ear. I still have some problems with my left ears to this day um, from that, but I had extremely loud um, tinnitus that was creating sort of depression and anxiety in me. Um, and then I had to go do my field work on tinnitus and actually focus and think about tinnitus all the time while I was suffering from this tinnitus. Um, 
it, it taught me so much. Um, and I'm actually rather grateful for that experience now, which is, I know, odd to say, but um, I learned a lot about um, the ways that um, this, okay, so we might say that, that um, this is the most basic signal or just a raw affect, right? It's a sound that only exists in your own brain. Um, and so it's like the sort of like the least mediated sound you can imagine. Right. And yet what I found through my field work is that the, it's experience is completely mediated and relational. Right. So like in a quiet space, people's tinnitus is louder. So we can imagine like a librarian with tinnitus. Okay. Um, so the librarians in the quiet space and the tinnitus gets louder. So right there, there's a mediation happening. There's a relationship between sound and space. And then the, the person notices their tinnitus and they have a sort of fearful reaction to it. This kind of affective fear gets attached to it. Um, that can actually encourage the, the brain to turn up the volume because um, there's a neurophysiological model of tinnitus that kind of shows that when the amygdala gets activated, um, you get the fight or flight reaction and the brain senses the tinnitus to be a threat and then says, oh, I better listen to that and turn it up. So the reaction to the tinnitus um, is activated in that way. So now we have this relationship between sound, space and self that's happening. Now, let's say someone comes and talks to that librarian and needs some help. That librarian is probably going to be kind of irritable or, or unhelpful because they're so stressed out, right? So now the social is getting um, uh, sort of involved in here. And so there's this completely mediated and relational experience that happens even with something as seemingly unmediated as a subjective sound. Um, and, and that's really like, I, tinnitus in that way helped me formulate my, um, my entire concept of Orphic media. Ideology is still important in this because ideology, the thing with sound, space, self, and the social is you pull on any one of those threads and it affects all the others, right? And so the, the, the sort of ideas, the discourse around the body, around tinnitus, around listening, affect the way we listen. Um, so for Spinoza, our ideas about the things that affect us are also affects. That's a really important thing to remember. Um, and so when I was doing my field work and I was interviewing people, um, people started talking about disability. And so I, I realized, oh my gosh, I don't have a good theory of disability. So I had to, um, I had to read up on disability and I learned about the ideology of ability and the way that the, the body of the, um, the disabled body is, is, is uh, something that is feared, right? And that there's an idea that uh, someone who is disabled is not themselves. And I heard this over and over again from, um, from people who would say, oh, well, I'm not myself anymore because I have this thing. But of course, that ideology um, is fueling the fear reaction. Um, so, so yeah, it was, it's a very complex relationship between sound and space and, and ideology and, and the experience of tinnitus. 
well, thinking about pulling on all those threads, uh, I'm thinking now of just the second chapter where we kind of see the productization or the beginning of the productization of solutions for managing one's sound space. Um, not the first project product, I'm sure, and certainly not the last. Um, and in, in the second chapter, you talk to us about these uh, products called sound conditioners, kind of by analogy with air conditioner, I think. Uh, devices produced more or less continuously from the late 1960s, uh, even to the present day, uh, I was surprised to learn, by um, a company called Marpac. Could you explain for our listeners then what a sound conditioner is and what you learned about its inventor, um, Bookwalter, James K. Bookwalter, in the course of uh, writing Hush? Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, the sound conditioner, um, I, I was surprised. I'm always surprised to learn when I talk about this, how many people know what it is. And, and yet I've never heard people talk about it until I ask them, but it, it's sort of like this dome shaped object that um, circulates air inside of its dome, creating a white noise sound. And people, you, you might see them like in your therapist's office to kind of create acoustic, acoustical privacy um, in the waiting room, uh, or people use them in the bedroom to help them sleep. Um, it was invented by, uh, really, um, uh, the patent, uh, you know, it, it's James Buckwalter is on the patent, but his wife, Trudy Buckwalter was very important in its invention. Um, the, the lore is that they were, um, in a motel room circa 1960 and the air conditioner in the room was broken and it wasn't too hot. That wasn't really bothering them. But um, the, the problem was there was a poker game going on in the next room and it was keeping them up, up all night. And Trudy said to Buck, who was a tinkerer and an, an inventor, um, I bet you could create something that would make the sound of an air conditioner. Because if we had that air conditioner on right now, we'd be sound asleep. And so when they got back from that trip, um, Buck, as he was called, he got a pie tin and a turntable motor from a record player and, um, and made a plywood base and um, made it cut out a coffee can uh, into some blades and put, and sort of put these things together and created this domed uh, object that made a whooshing sound and they slept with it next to their bed um, and it worked great. And their friends started, you know, when they heard about it, they wanted one too. And they went into business. Um, and these are part of a huge market that, again, hasn't really been studied, but, you know, they're called personal sensory therapy devices. Um, and media scholars haven't really paid attention to this stuff, but it's like, you know, ocean wave machines and massaging chairs and aromatherapy and light therapy. Um, it's a massive market. Um, and I, I studied it. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, if you want to see these things, you go to Bed Bath & Beyond instead of Best Buy. Uh, I don't know if those retailers mean anything to you in Ireland, but, um, uh, well, from, yeah, enough time in the U S has taught me to discriminate between the two. Yeah, I know. I, I think I find rather find myself in a Best Buy than a Bed Bath & Beyond, but that's probably <laughs> because I'm into technology, but I, the point is taken, right? It's a different, it's, it's, it's a comment on its expected space and function in the home right yeah yeah exactly and and um you know you you would i had to go to the home and housewares show 
instead of CES to study to study these things, um, even though they're, you know, in many cases clearly media devices, right? They're, they're media as technologies of self care. Um, so then, yeah, my I, I guess my question about this market and these devices is like why they became necessary and useful again. Um, and I guess on that topic, um, it's interesting to think about how, I mean, it's something that you bring up in this chapter in particular is the connection with kind of theories of techniques. In particular, you're invoking um, the phenomenologist Don Ida, who talks about various, I suppose, different um, levels or aspects to his thought and he, these objects directed you towards this idea in Ida's work of um, background relations. So I guess kind of <laughs> not to do, <laughs> to do injustice to it by summarizing things so concisely, but aspects of our, our, our relationship to techniques that um, present themselves more as, as background or grounding elements, ground rather than, than figure in our relationship with techniques. Um, would you talk a little, just a little bit about where that fits into your analysis of these devices? Because I think it might be useful for thinking uh, for the rest of the interview, what are the stakes for studying these kinds of devices, maybe from this philosophy of technology perspective? Yeah, let me, so, um, and if I don't quite make my way to, to what you have in mind, let me know and, and uh, sure. maybe you can tell me <laughs> your interpretation of the book. But. Um, yeah, Don Don Ides, um, you know, does this kind of he, he does this kind of phenomenology of technology, and he, he postulates these different kinds of relations we have. So, following on Heidegger, and, you know, embodiment relations, um, where the the, the the technology is an extension of the body, hermeneutic relations, where we read the the technology kind of semiology se, uh, semiotically, or, or it. it gives us information about something else. Alterity relations where we kind of engage with the technology as an object of attention, um, almost like a, a being in itself. So like maybe AI or video games perhaps. Um, and then background relations. And, and thinking about this schema, I really thought that background relations are the ones that media scholars don't focus on very often. Um, and this was, you know, his examples of background relations are, oh, like shelter, lighting, air conditioning, these kinds of atmospheric relations that that kind of take care of us, but but are only become the object of attention when they break down, you know. Um, and so. I think, you know, media studies could do a better job often of thinking about media in this way, although there are great folks, like I mentioned before, Anna McCarthy's Ambient Television, um, Paul Roquet's book, Ambient Media, um, John Duran Peters talks about environmental media. So I, I think there's a there's some healthy movement in this space, but I'd certainly trying to contribute to that, thinking about the background relations of media technologies um, and, and what I found was that they, these types of background technologies became necessary and useful in post-war America because capitalism had f sort of fragmented, f 
physical space and an accelerated time for the purpose of, of speeding circulation, um, the circulation of human bodies, circulation of commodities, circulation of information. So following on folks like Paul Virilio, Jonathan Crary, um, I, I, I was thinking a lot about, you know, the interstate highway, jet airplanes, 24-hour diners, television, um, all of this um, heterogeneous um, activity increases the perception of noise, right? Um, because we've created spaces for circulation and those spaces are not necessarily very habitable. And so these technologies come in to kind of help us inhabit these spaces of, of uh, circulation better or, or more peacefully or, 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 or feel less disempowered by them. Yeah. And that moment of trying to intervene on a, an environment or atmosphere that we're either alienated from or feel for some reason unhappy with uh, is a good segue into, into the next chapter that you discuss another kind of Orphic media. This one now is facilitated by the technology of sound recording. So it builds a little bit on the history of phonography. Um, you talk about um, how environmental recordings, nature recordings can figure also as Orphic media. Uh, and you look at the late 60s, early 70s recordings in the so-called environment series, which featured the sounds of nature, including the sounds of waves, birds, other natural phenomena. Um, you discuss the work of Irv Teibel, the kind of, uh, I would say, idiosyncratic is probably putting it lightly, head <laughs> of a company called Syntonic Research Inc., which, of course, like if you've got a name like that, you know something's something's up. Um, uh, Teibel <laughs> p- positioned these recordings as an intervention, a cybernetic intervention into um, the soundscape of, I suppose, the, like exactly you said, the post-war um, domestic environment in the United States and I guess abroad. Could you tell me a little bit more about Teibel and I guess a lot of the analysis in this chapter, or some of the analysis, I should say, derives from the analysis of his marketing materials and I guess his personal archive and, and how you understand the way that he positioned these recordings. So if you talk a little bit about the guy himself, the recordings, but more concretely, the way that these recordings were marketed tell us a lot about the perceived need and the actual need for um, this kind of intervention. Yes, yes. Um, I, I was very fortunate um, to gain access to Teibel's archive. He, he is deceased, but um, his daughter, Jennifer, kindly let me um, fly down to Austin, Texas, um, where he and, and she uh, live and uh, open up a storage space and just kind of like go at it and, and uh, digitize all these materials, many of which now she has actually posted on a website about Teibel. Um, he was this fascinating polymath, you know, he was an ad man. He was a photographer, a graphic designer. He, um, got into modular synthesis, um, when he was stationed in Europe, um, uh, as a, in the army and he was a field recordist. And I should say he was also a snake oil salesman. <laughs> he really, he, as you said, his uh, his company was called Syntonic Research Incorporated, or SRI. Um, but there, it was a corporation with very little corpus. It was just him, you know. Like it, it, he made it sound like they were these big industrial 
psychoacoustics experts and psych- psychology experts. Um, but in fact, he just kind of made up a lot of his claims that were on these records. So th- the way that this series of records was called Environments, it was very, very popular in the 1970s and 80s. First one came out in 1969, um, entitled Ultimate Seashore. Um, and, and basically there were 22 of these total and there was, there would be one oral environment per side of the record or the tape. Um, and they were topics like wood masted sailboat, um, um, or ultimate seashore and, um, these, these environment, these oral environments, right. Um, and he made all kinds of claims, you know, and you have to remember that, you know, the first one came out in 1969. So it was this era of new environmentalism and gurus and LSD. And he was promoting these as applied psychology devices in recorded form. Um, he said that they could counteract the damaging effects of noise pollution. They could help you read faster. They could enhance sex, make your plants grow faster. <laughs> Um, you could achieve alpha brainwave states of consciousness. Um, and so the liner notes were these very directive liner notes that you really had to read the material on the outside of the record. And, um, and they were full of these fabricated claims about the efficacy of the sounds. And there's this real cybernetic influence here. You know, the phonograph becomes this interface between the user and the environment. Um, in a way that is reminiscent of what um, Fred Turner calls the new communalism. Um, it, the, the, the folks who, um, you know, blended a love of technology with a sort of nostalgia for, you know, the, the rural earth um, as seen in like the whole earth catalog, right? Um, Tybal is very much of a piece of, of that sort of thing, these kind of communitarian movements that move cybernetic discourse from informatic machine control into a kind of integrative ecology. Right. And I'm glad you've signaled that because it, it kind of helps it, you alluded to it a little bit before, but this is a kind of the non-informatic way of dealing with cybernetics, which I suppose second order cybernetics and, and it's something you tease out a little bit more in the next chapter yeah, sure. I, I would say just maybe one more thing about Tybal, and then maybe we can sure. talk about the cybernetics. Is the thing, even though I, I kind of make fun of Tybal, um, you know, um, and expose some of his more snake oil characteristics, I, I really admire this series. I, I love this series. Um, and what I really like feel so warm about is is that this is the rare moment when Orphic media aren't used in utilitarian, individualistic ways. Um, back when we, we get to the white noise machine, to, to, to backpedal just a, a bit, um, we really see through the marketing of the white noise machine something that's going to carry through in almost all other Orphic media, which is that you use these machines to either sleep or concentrate. Right, it's very utilitarian, and in fact, they took the exact same white noise device and they put different badges on the top. And one said, in one case, it was called the Sleep Mate, and that was for home use. And in another case, uh, it was called the Sound Screen, and that was for office use because 
people in offices didn't want something that said sleep mate. It didn't seem professional, but it's the exact same device, right? Um, Tybal is pushing Orphic media in a direction that Orpheus himself would approve of, <laughs> right? Like he's, he's, he's using Orphic media to help people interconnect. He's saying you should use these records for shared mental trips. You should use them to have sex. You should use them for your, to make your plants grow better, you know? And, and people picked up on this, like encounter groups that were popular in the seventies, like Est would play these records during their meetings, freeform radio stations played them. And they even got picked up in real clinical settings, like actual therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists were using these um, in their offices to, to help them connect with their patients. Um, so, so yeah, so it's, it's kind of like this brief moment of possibility in Orphic media history. <laughs> yeah. And I, I guess another just, just to tack on, I was especially interested in the um, the comment cards, the feedback cards that he had uh, received. He had solicited um, consumer feedback, right? And and they were an important source for you, or an, an interesting source for you, right? Yeah, yeah. He he would he. I mean, he really treated um, in some ways these records like they were consumer electronic devices. He would he would include feedback cards and he would want to know, you know, what kind of stereo you were listening on and, and all of this technical stuff. Um, and what, you know, kinds of problems that these records were solving for you. So in some ways, I mean, he was actually doing some interesting kinds of market research. It, it just wasn't the, the sort of, um, sanctioned scientific type of research that uh, he made it appear to be. Sure. And speaking of um, devices that became like wildly successful in the market, we'll turn now, I guess, in chapter four to uh, one of this categories of Orphic media that we alluded to a little bit before, which is the um, genre of white noise apps. Um, and here we're talking about um, software for our portable media devices, right? Our, our cell phones, our smartphones that provide sound sources very similar to in some cases, the sound conditioners, in other cases, the um, field recordings of uh, Tybos. But in both cases, in this kind of compact format, these sounds promise a solution to these modern soundscapes that we've already diagnosed as being a, f- a function of sort of like capitalism. Um, but the solution that these devices offers, in your reading at least, uh, comes at the cost of reconfiguring ourselves as a kind of cybernetic subject whose problem is that we are unable to filter out this noise. We have this kind of cognitive or processual failure in our um, in our ear that means that we can't successfully dial down, filter out, uh, eradicate the, the noise or sounds of our environment. Um, and, and that, you think, seems to come to the fore in these um, these smartphone apps. Could you talk a little bit about these apps um, and uh, why you think that they represent a vision of the listener whose information processing capacities are somehow stunted or, or failing when presented with um, the, the sounds of late capitalism. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that question. Um, yeah. I, I do use these apps as a, as a sort of a means of exploring our contemporary society of control um, and, and our kind of informatic way of thinking about the world and ourselves. And um 
these apps in some ways are really wonderful because, you know, they're often free. They do democratize this kind of freedom from listening. But again, you know, why does this freedom from listening feel so necessary right now? Um, and I argue that in part, it's because the digital has kind of pushed this post-enlightenment utilitarian logic beyond human limits. Um, and it's really sort of amplified the spatial and temporal and economic pressures of capitalism. We've turned information into an ontology. We're encouraged to think that everything from ourselves to ourselves to the stars is made of information. Um, and, and Catherine Hales calls this the condition of virtuality. Um, I call it infocentrism. Um, it's reflected in something like um, the very famous um, uh, psychologist Csikszentmihalyi's notion of flow, right? <laughs> Happiness comes from training your attention on good information and discarding noise. And we're encouraged to reconceive ourselves as information processors. Csikszentmihalyi says that we can process precisely 110 bits of information per second. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I love this because it's, it's, um, you know, it's saying that we're naturally information processors, but at the same time, it's this double move that's happening saying, well, actually we're not very good information processors. Um, and so we need things to assist us, right? Like, a state of flow is natural, and yet you have to achieve that natural state of flow. Um, and, and I've seen this kind of discourse in the marketing materials for these apps and in, in my interviews with people who develop these apps. Um, and really, in order to succeed in the information economy, we have to be these focused and attentive and self-controlled subjects, Right. But at the exact same time that this very same information economy is flooding us with distractions and, and playing upon us effectively. Um, so we can never, ever live up to the demands of information capitalism because we're not actually informatic beings. Um, we're, we're effective, embodied, messy beings. Um, and the proof of this is in the fact that we need these digital technologies to help us behave as if we were informatic. Um, and so this is where you were kind of talking about um, second order cybernetics. I'm thinking about what uh, Bruce Hales calls, um, or Bruce Clark calls uh, neo-cybernetics, the cybernetics associated with Maturana and Varela. Um, Varela says there's no such thing as information. It's a useless notion in biology. Um, and, and really, we're like a single-celled organism that can only understand its environment in ways that are sensible to its internal workings, right? So um, there's no information that crosses the barrier between subject and object, um, or, or subject and subject, for that matter, right? It's, there's just these sort of um, perturbations that the world makes on us that are only sensible to us um, 
as we can sense them based on our own internal logic. So information is generated internally by an observer. It's not this transcendent subject that unites us all, which is the way that all of this discourse tends to make us feel, right? So instead, we're like that single-celled organism. Um, and this is where affect comes back in. We move toward what feels enlivening and enabling, and we move away from what feels disabling and diminishing. And that's how we use media. Um, and this, this, this way of thinking has been criticized for being kind of modernist and individualist. But I think the thing that's beautiful about this non-informatic version of cybernetics is that it's our very separateness that forces us to reach out towards one another, right? Like if, if, if we could just transcendent, if transcendent information could just help, we could just mind meld with one another. Um, and we were really just networks of informatic systems, then we wouldn't be attracted to the mystery of one another. <laughs> we wouldn't need love, you know? Um, and so Spinoza is, is really thinking about, um, an ethical life is, is the, is, is one that tries to get past those barriers and to understand what's really affecting us and not to blame the wrong thing or wrong person and lash out in ways that hurt one another or hurt ourselves. Um, like say the current American president does on Twitter. Yeah, yeah um, indeed. And an opportune moment maybe to swing to the issues that come to the fore in the last pair of chapters um, on that sober note of ethics, but also, you know, again, the technologies that you describe in the book really paint in kind of stark terms in some in some cases, exactly what's at stake when we come and start to think about orphic media. And I'll, I'll take the final two chapters together um, because they deal with two very closely related sets of objects, which is not to diminish the differences between the two uh, products that you describe, but it's in fact, I guess, in some ways to emphasize them. So so in the, in the fifth chapter, you talk about um, Bose's popular range of noise-canceling headphones, often seen sported uh, I imagine by some of our listeners, by well-to-do business travelers um, and their function in carving out a kind of uh, space to be more productive in a particular kind of noisy environment. And then in chapter six, you move to the brainchild of gangster rapper Dr. Dre, the Beats brand of headphones, whose products dominated the high-end market for headphones for a number of years in the late 2010s, thanks not only to a successful and striking advertising strategy, but also to the support of other manufacturers um, which culminated in the acquisition of the Beats brand. I, I note this kind of trivia for kind of rhetorical effect by Apple in, in 2014 for $3 billion. Yeah. So yeah. Orphic Media are good for business, right? Yeah. Um, what is it about these two different families of products? Uh, both of them, I imagine, familiar to a lot of listeners um, in a way that some of the other case studies may not have been. What about these two sets really reveals the conditions of Orphic Media in the present moment? Well, um, so this is the sort of the, the third mode of sonic affective control, this, this cancellation technology. Um, maybe I, I won't, you've done a nice job of kind of uh, mentioning uh, the Dr. Dre and, and, and maybe I won't speak too much about Amar Bose in the interest of time. Um, but w what I did was, I, you know, I studied noise canceling headphones and the discourse around them. So the reviews, the, um, the commercials, um, when they were first released in 2000 and, and I, I wanted to see how did, how was this, you know, 
product introduced and made understandable to people. And what I found was that um, they were, you know, the, the marketing, I expected it, it to be all about sound quality. And what I found instead was the production of personal space and um, the images of the airport and airplanes. So I was like, hmm, why, why airports and airplanes? Um, well, it, it was business travelers, you know, there's the appeal of removing the, the sound of the jet engine when one is trying to, to, you know, enjoy some kind of content, which is in fact how Amar Bose thought of these ideas. He thought of them on an airplane. Um, but also airports and airplanes exhibit all the pluses and minuses of an unbridled free market, right? Like on the plus side, they're democratic, uh, ostensibly democratic spaces, you know, as long as you got the money to be there, diverse, um, you've got speed, the freedom of mobility and commerce. Um, but on the negative side, there are all these unintended consequences. They're cramped, they're hectic, cascading delays, um, you know, you're in this meaningless, transient space full of strangers. Um, you know, it's not a community, it's a network. And so the free, it, to me, the airport and the airplane are a, this really lovely way of seeing how the free market impedes its own enjoyment. And so what's the solution to this hell of flying? Well, of course, it's to introduce another product into the market. <laughs> um, and so um, what I found was, you know, in terms of who this was being marketed towards, it was to this road warrior, this mostly white male, upper-class, frequent flyer, early adopter fellow. Um, and so then my question became, well, what is this noise that this person needs to be protected from? And when I did an analysis of all the reviews and news stories and ads, um, I got the sounds of transportation, which was expected, but I also got women's and children's voices as things that you might want to cancel out. So, um, so we might call this white noise in the sense of noise from a white male perspective. Um, and I got to say that the, the, the Bose campaign did diversify over time. And, and, and um, so I, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush here, but just, but that, that's what I found in the early days. That's how it was marketed with beats. Um, the, um, the noise canceling version of beats headphones um, started in 2013. Um, the, the ad campaign was called hear what you want. Um, as you said, you know, it featured all these um, young African-American athletes surrounded by haters and doubters. Um, and the Beats campaign um, focuses on a different identity, right? Um, the Beats campaign depicted quietude as this kind of prudent technology of self-care in a racist America. And so it refashions the social construction of, of Orphic Media for African-American users. Um, but it still maintains... The, the Bose idea of making a safe space for yourself, right? And, and detaching from social dissonance. Um, it, it becomes very interesting though, um, because in reality, a star like Colin Kaepernick, who was in one of these commercials, didn't tune out racism by putting on headphones in real life, right? He deployed silence in a really powerful political way that we're still feeling the repercussions of today, right? Um, and so he didn't use a commodity to um, 
to kind of tune out racism as is depicted in these commercials. On the other hand, I, it's tempting to kind of celebrate Colin Kaepernick's risky and collectivist kind of use of silence while condemning this de- defensive kind of individualistic use of silence in the commercials with the headphones. But the campaign also could be seen as like, it, it, um, and, and Alex Blue has pointed this out, this campaign can be seen as reclaiming a kind of calm, sensitive, um, quiet version of African-American masculinity that has really been denied in a lot of representations of, of black men. So it, it, it's complicated. But I would say the big takeaway or a big takeaway point from these two chapters is that the way Orphic Media marketing works um, is very similar to that of opinion bud- bubbles and media bubbles. And, and um, it's, it's, it's this way of zeroing in on a particular identity and saying, we're going to make that particular identity safe from all the noise out there. Sure. And I guess in some, it's kind of, at times there's this desire perhaps like for a world in which at least Orphic Media and the way that they present them now, themselves now as, as either commodities or as, uh, dare I say, solutions, um, it would be not necessary. Like, I mean, there is a possibly a vision. Is that something that you share? Like a world in which we no longer need to regulate ourselves in this way? Or do you think of Orphic Media as something which we're going to always have to deal with, but we may not necessarily have to deal with them in the way that they're presented to us now as products, but maybe more as tactics for, I don't know, getting on better together as a, citizens or as uh, individuals interested in, especially something that comes up in the last chapter, a more just and um, quiet, if you like, society. Yeah, I, I, um, it's, it's a great question. I think the, um, the, the scary possibility is that, you know, these with these devices called hearables that actually put computers into the ear bud itself, right? Um, we're developing these possibilities of treating um, our relationship to our sonic environment in a sort of database selective access way, which I think is a very thin way of experiencing the, the sonic world and experiencing one another. Um, and, and so I, I kind of warn against that because, you know, it's, it sounds nice to be able to just cancel out the crying baby and say, okay, I want to hear, I want to be able to hear the um, flight attendant, but not the crying baby. Like that's like the dream. Right. <laughs> but, but I, I just think when we, it's going to make the world more like the internet. Right. And we've actually found that even though the internet is very good at giving us only what we want. It doesn't seem to be the happiest place in the world. Um, and, and, and so I kind of end the book by remembering that Orpheus was the first poet, you know, the first singer of songs that Orpheus also speaks to the power of things like music to bring us together. So it maybe is a little bit of a hippy dippy ending, but, um, you know, drawing on concepts like inter, listening and and um and and deep listening um i i kind of argue for is there a way that technologists can recraft orphic media to be more about bringing us together yeah well on that note i think 
Well, there's the challenge pose, the gauntlet, I suppose, is thrown down. Um, we've taken up loads of your time. I'm extremely uh, pleased to have spoken with you about the book today. Um, it's a great read. Um, and I kind of look forward to more, I guess, from you. Is there anything else that you're working on now um, that you'd like to flag for our listeners? And whereabouts we should go if uh, we're interested in following more of your work? Or um, you mentioned your podcast too as well. I'd be more than happy for you. Uh, us to link to that too so um where, where can we find more about what you're up to uh, lately yeah um I, I have been you know very interested in in the idea of doing sound scholarship in sound um so i have this podcast phantom power um about sound in the arts and the humanities um it's kind of highly produced it takes me a long time to, to create an episode um uh, that the, the next one that's coming out probably in a couple of weeks is with um, experimental musician from Iran, Siavash Amini. Um, I think it's, I think it's going to be great because he's really fascinating. Um, that the website is phantompod.org, or you can just search Phantom Power wherever you get um, podcasts, as they say. <laughs> I'm also working with a friend of mine, an experimental composer, Daniel Fishkin, on an audio documentary series um, contemplating the downsides of deep listening, Pauline Oliveras's famous concept, um, in the ways that musicians' heightened listening can actually be kind of painful. <laughs> so um, that should be an interesting project, but we're still in the kind of um, planning stages of that. Sure, uh, that sounds fascinating. I, I'm very curious to hear about that. I think a little bit sometimes of my own training as a musician. Sometimes it's not always something that you wish you had, and something indeed that you might switch, wish that you could uh, switch off. Yes, uh, exactly. well, but indeed that's probably that desire to switch on and switch off is exactly what we need to question. So, listen, right. thank you very, very much for coming on the show, uh, Mac. It was great to speak to you. Thank you, and have a great day. All right, thank you. Amy.